Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's podcast. When we think about genomics, we usually focus on the genome, the DNA blueprint that resides in every cell. We try to connect it to various diseases, important traits, and predispositions to disease, whatever. But the DNA is simply the instruction manual of the machine. And the grand challenge of genomics is how to connect that parts list to the function in the complicated machine of the human body. Now, there's ways to do that by functionally studying and analyzing the effects of single genes on various traits. We won't talk about that today. Another way to think about this is to understand when and where the parts are in the machine. The parts are the proteins, the catalytic and structural molecules that are the major components of cells. And they're the central drivers of gene expression, biochemistry, metabolism, development, physiology, whatever. So if we're going to understand where different proteins are present, we can begin to infer their roles in specific biological processes. And even more, we can start to relate those data to the mountains of gene expression and other genomic data. Our guest today has been a leader in assembling the Human Protein Atlas, a guide to localization of proteins in specific tissues, and then relating them to other higher order questions. So our guest is Dr. Matthias Ullen. He's a professor of microbiology in the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, Sweden, and also the director at SciLife Lab in Stockholm. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ullen. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be part of this. I'm really glad you're here because we focus a lot on DNA. We focus a lot on RNA and gene expression and a lot of traits that are controlled at those levels. And we sometimes don't give enough credit to proteins who are actually the molecules that are doing the work at the end. So this is really exciting. So let's start at the beginning. Why is it critical for us to understand the location and function of different proteins? Well, as you sort of outlined in the beginning, the proteins are the building blocks of human life, but also all life on this planet. So understanding the proteins is what I think the dream of all of us working with human biology, but also the biology of other species. So the, uh, just as you say, the, the genes are the blueprint. Uh, they are, we have fantastic tools to study uh, genes and DNA. It is a little bit harder or much harder to study the proteins. But of course, since they are the functional units of human life and also other species' life, we need to move to that level to understand the uh, human life in a sort of more holistic sense. So, and obviously we need to know which proteins are in different parts of human body, which are in the brain, which are in the liver, which are in the blood and so on. And that is sort of what we're trying to do now in the Human Protein Atlas, to map out and create a map of human, uh, the human body related to proteins then. Okay, so you mentioned the Human Protein Atlas. So what exactly is the Human Protein Atlas and 
what was the main driver to start building this this resource? So I was very much involved in the genome project that was going on during the 90s and sort of accumulated in in, 90, in the beginning of 2001 when the, the genome project was, you know, the, the first sequence was actually launched or, 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 yeah. And already back in those times, I was then almost obsessed by the thought that we should look at all the coding genes in the genome, uh, coding them for proteins. And at that time, we thought it was 130,000 genes, each one then coding for, uh, for proteins. Now we know, 20 years later, that it's actually only 20,000 genes. And these are then the genes that then codes for the proteins that makes us tick. They, they are the reason why we can function in the world, why we can talk, why we can think, and so on. So obviously, it's incredibly exciting to be part of a journey where you actually then map out this uh, very complex organism as humans are. Well, how did we get that so wrong? I mean, from 130,000 uh, genes predicted, or at least that hypothesized, to come down to actually 20,000 coding regions, uh, how did we get that so incorrect? Well, that is, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I think one of the reasons was that when we were doing the uh, genome project back in the 90s, people looked at the RNA, and in the RNA, we have a lot of so-called splice variants, which are variants of RNA. And this was, I think, mistaken for new genes. So now we know that a lot of these so-called splice variants, which are variants of the RNA, actually comes from the same gene. So every year, actually, the number has sort of come down and come down and come down. And there was a betting back in the 90s how many genes humans have. And I think no one uh, actually guessed that we would have as few <laughs> as, as 20,000. Uh, so I don't think anyone won, actually. Well, I guess when we think about that, so let's say 20,000 genes, how many different proteins can come from that set of genes? Well, Right now in the databases, we have about 80,000 different proteins predicted. And this is because we have variants. So you have one gene, it codes for a protein, but that protein can then vary in different ways. One is that it can be modified. It could be, as I said, these splice forms where you add on different sort of parts to it and so on. So, so, but what we are focusing on in the Human Protein Atlas is the sort of redundant proteome, the 20,000 proteins which sort of are coded by the 20,000 genes. And we are not focusing so much on the variation of these 20,000 proteins. Okay, so you're not the variation, but also not really focusing on modification, right? So proteins are sometimes decorated with other types of amendments, uh, like cosylation or other things that change their chemical properties or their function. And so you're really just looking at the core protein itself. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting statement you do by saying that they change function by modification. This is somewhat controversial, 
Obviously, modification can make an enzyme to be active or inactive, but I would not say that changes the function of the protein. It's simply an on and off switch of, of, of a function. Uh, and a lot of the decorations, as you say, the glycosylation also doesn't really change the function in most cases. It's more to make it more soluble or maybe to go to another parts of the human body and so on. But if you actually want to look at the function of proteins, I think it's kind of close to the 20,000 that we now know from the, from the Genome Project. Very good. So, so the whole goal of the Atlas is to determine localization. So how do you do that? I mean, how do you go across a broad section of all the proteins and find out where specific proteins are residing? Yeah, that's uh, so this is, of course, the core of the whole project. And we do that. Uh, first of all, what we decided about 20 years ago when we started this project is to make a so-called antibody to every human protein. So an antibody is a protein actually that specifically binds to just one of the proteins in the whole mixture of all the proteins. And this is, of course, very much used in the therapeutic industry by the medical pharma companies and so on. But what we decided to do is to do something very ambitious, and that is to make one antibody to every protein, the 20,000 proteins. And this is something we spent 10 years with. We had a lot of work. We had, you know, this was almost 1,000 person years. And now we have this resource of antibodies that then can, which is sort of a hook to actually fish out the protein from, from different tissues. Uh, and then this is combined with sort of classic bioimaging where you actually take out and tissues, normal tissues and diseased tissues from humans, and then you actually stain them with these antibodies to get images. And we are producing a lot of images. So we have about 10 million images now, which are uh, available in the, in the database. Each one is then showing one protein in one tissue. So people can go there and look, where is the protein? How does it look? And so on. The magnitude of this is is, is incredible. I, I know that maybe had one antibody synthesized once <laughs> and to have one done and to vet it and to you know ensure that it's working properly. That was a tremendous amount of work. I can only imagine doing every protein in the human body. But you are right. I mean, we're also working with therapeutic antibodies and the pharma companies are doing that for cancer and so on. And obviously, it's probably about 1,000 person years to generate one antibody. So, so this was, of course, uh, a lot of automation. It was a lot of IT and so on to actually make this possible. But in the end, we have this resource now. It's pretty incredible. So what are some of the things that we've learned from the Human Protein Atlas? Well, we learned a lot of things, but I should say that the, the real value of this is that the individual researcher can go in and look at their favorite protein, and then they can see where is this protein localized in the cell, in what organs is it. And a lot of 
the, I think surprises is that people maybe think that they have a kidney protein and they are developing something for a kidney disease, but then they go into the protein atlas and they realize that this protein is also in the liver or in the brain. And this, of course, has consequences for side effects of drug development and so on. So that is sort of the main focus is to provide the, the sort of an encyclopedia uh, of, of all the proteins. And you can then go in and see it yourself for your favorite protein. But we have also learned a lot of surprising technologies by doing this kind of holistic type of, of mapping. One is that we now know that we have about 3,000 proteins, 3,000 building blocks that constitutes what we call the housekeeping proteins. These are proteins which are needed in all cells around the body. And they are, of course, incredibly important to map and understand. Then we have about 5,000 proteins, so about 25% of the proteins, which are specific for one tissue, one organ, or, or maybe a few. Uh, and these are, of course, also very interesting. So this is something, uh, and I guess this is also very surprising that when we look at these specific proteins, the organ or the tissue that actually has most of these specific proteins is testis, followed by the brain. So this is, of course, something which is rather surprising. And then, of course, we have also mapped all the proteins which are actively secreted to blood. And these proteins are very, very important for precision medicine, for medical diagnostics in the future. And the, it, it is interesting to follow them when you have a disease or, or, or actually to, to actually explore wellness in, in people. What we have found when it comes to the blood proteins is that each one of us, you and I and everybody which is listening, has this unique blood profile. It's sort of a fingerprint so you can actually look at the proteins and actually you will, have, you will have something different from your neighbor and so on. And this is, of course, we're only sort of starting to understand why do we have these differences and what does it mean for our health and for our wellness. Well, that's really, really impressive. It's really interesting to think about. But when we think about an atlas, the reason an atlas is, is, is useful, like in a roadmap atlas, is because it, it, it has a universal set of, of, of guidelines and guidance. And so does the protein atlas provide us with any kind of cross-section across populations? Or was this from maybe one person? Or is this done from many different individuals that you know, span a variety of different genetic backgrounds and, and sexes, that kind of thing? That's a very interesting question. So what, when we started this, uh, since this is a rather expensive exercise, and even if we did it on relatively few individuals, it still created 10 million images. We have created 15 million web pages. So this is a quite a massive product. But we focused on relatively few individuals, but we also, but we try to always have an age differentiation and always a gender if, uh, difference. So you could see both the males and females, but also 
a little bit uh, also across different uh, parts of the of the geography but what we see which is maybe surprising for many people is that we are incredibly similar on the molecular love level when you look at these proteins in the in in the different parts of the human body it is almost impossible to to at least on the resolution we have to see differences between different people. This is a little bit different from the blood, as I said, where there we can see differences, but in the tissues, we are very, very similar. And maybe it's not that surprising since all of us has to do exactly the same in, in these tissues. A liver has to be there to detoxify the body. The kidney has to, to clean the blood and so on. So we need to have the same function and we are incredibly sim similar when you actually look at least at the sort of level that we are looking right now. I guess that's my big question is that you're taking, when you're interrogating tissue with an antibody, you're taking a snapshot of that developmental state. And so, you know, do we look across time as well, like where, you know, early development versus late development and having a sense of what players are there in changing through that? So it is, a, of course, a very important product to also look during development. It has actually been for us a little bit challenging to get ethical approval for that. So what we have done is that we are now focusing at looking at development in model animals, such as pig, uh, macaques, which are primates, and then also mouse and rat, and try to learn about development by using these model organisms. And again, the, these model organisms are very, very similar to humans, although there are, of course, quite big differences. But you know, a liver in the pig is very similar to the liver in in humans and so on. Well, all of this seems like just an amazing resource. And I've, I've played around with a little bit and taken a look, but I need to dig in a little bit deeper and I will do that. But after the break, we'll talk a little bit more about the data that are present and your access to them. This is Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we're speaking with Dr. Matthias Ullen. He's a professor of microbiology at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, and also the director of the SciLife Lab in Stockholm. And we're speaking about the Human Protein Atlas and this amazing resource, which is an extension of efforts from the a human genome project that now talks about the proteins and where they're located through a what we've heard is a massive effort to identify when, when and where they're expressed in different tissues. And 
one of the real nice hallmarks of this work is, is that anybody can access it. So why is it important to have this kind of open access biological data? Yeah, so it is very important to have an open access to the data in this kind of projects. And, and there are three reasons for that. One is that basic knowledge it should be available to researchers around the world. And obviously, this is very basic knowledge about something that almost everybody needs to know. And therefore, it's important to have an open access. The second reason is that a lot of the future research will be done with artificial intelligence, machine learning, using big data to actually then provide that and, and explore that and massage the data. And this should be done by different groups around the world. And then if you have open access to the primary data, that can ex be exported and a lot of people can look at the data and, and actually then learn from that. The third reason is that it is not that easy to actually validate the results coming out of big data. And therefore, if you have the primary data, it is easier for people, external researchers, to actually validate uh, the conclusions, the results. So it is also important for that reason. But I think the main reason, obviously, is that when it comes to fundamental knowledge about us, health, disease, we should share that uh, in the community. And we are very fortunate that the foundation, the Wallenberg Foundation, a nonprofit organization here in Sweden that have funded this project, they are very much in favor of open access of, of, the, of data. Well, very good. So when you start uh, talking about open access, we start thinking about applications. And can you talk to us about precision medicine and how the Protein Atlas is really a central assistant in diagnostics or developments of new therapies? Yeah, so precision medicine obviously is, the objective is to allow the right treatment to the right patients and try to move towards a more individualized treatments. And of course, to use then molecular tools both of diagnostics to stratify patients so you get so you know how to treat them, but also to monitor afterwards the treatment to see that you know you're on the right path. And with the new tools that have been developed, we have now fantastic opportunities. And I think the next 10, 20 years will be an absolute gold mine for all the research moving into precision medicine. A lot of that is genetics and trying to understand what you know, genetic variants do to people. But even more important, and I guess I'm biased here, would be to actually learn about the proteins in blood and also in cancers and so on, and try to learn from that how you should treat, but also how to diagnose so you know what, what disease a, a particular patient has. So this is very much what we're trying to do now, moving from the human biology that we and the normal biology that we have been working on for 20 years, and now in the next 10 years, sort of moving to diseases 
and try to see what happens when you have Alzheimer's, what happens when you have Parkinson, and, and how does that affect your blood profiles, and can that be used then to treat or, or find best drugs or, or, or diagnostics for a particular disease. I see. That's that's really a great application because if you're comparing disease tissue versus normal tissue, you can learn about what proteins are changing. And if you know that, now you can start thinking about potentially drug design to target those different proteins that are changing if they seem to be causal to the pathology that's there. But you mentioned this idea of blood profiling. Could you really learn something from changes in the blood that correspond to a disease state based upon proteins that may be detected? Absolutely. So, so obviously, the protein profiling in blood is a huge technical challenge. The difference in concentration between very abundant proteins like uh, serum albumin and then very low abundant proteins like the cytokines and the immunological proteins is more than a 10 billion the, the, the difference. And then make it, all, it has in the past been almost impossible to simultaneously analyze more than maybe a few protein targets in the blood. This has changed now. In the last five, 10 years, there has been fantastic developments. One is down in, in Boulder, Colorado, a, a company called Somalogic, and another one in Uppsala, Sweden, a technology called Olink or Olink Explore. And in both these cases, you can now actually analyze thousands and thousands of proteins simultaneously and then get very quantitative results. So this is an absolute revolution for all of us that are interesting in the blood profiles of, of humans, both, you know, to cover or to analyze wellness, but also to analyze diseases. Yeah, and maybe even have some predictive power in saying that we see this particular blood protein come up at an early onset of a specific cancer, something like that. Yeah, so that is, of course, the dream. And that I, I mean, I would be disappointed if we didn't use these new technologies in a few years and we actually screen ourselves maybe once a year and we will then actually see if we have cancers or other kind of diseases maybe long, long before we have the symptoms of that cancer or some other disease. The challenge here, of course, is something what we call false positives. When you do screening, obviously, even if you have a few, pro, uh, few samples that are sort of considered positive, but they are actually negative, you cause a lot of distress in those patients. So it is very important then that you can combine this with a very quick validation to say that you have this disease or not. Uh, but this is, of course, something that we're, I, I am extremely, you know, devoted to, to be part of, of, of developing such tools for the future. Well, you mentioned that images are available for open access, but are there quantitative data? So like, can we tell how much of a protein might be available where, and then those data can be related to other 
data sets of say gene expression or, or other types of, you know, or, or metabolic data to understand maybe the basis of disease or, or other types of, you know, gene variants that maybe contribute to some sort of disease state? Well, that's a very important question, actually. So one of the disadvantages with the antibody technology is that it's not, it is not uh, solid quantitative. It is sort of semi-quantitative, and we've been trying to use something called tissue arrays to make it a little bit more quantitative. Uh, we are also combining this with uh, RNA analysis. There is a, something called single-cell transcriptomics and so on, which is much, much more quantitative. Uh, and that actually together can give us rather good indications of the actual levels of a particular protein, both in tissues and, and of course in blood, because we have these new technologies for blood analysis. When it comes to variations, this is of course very important. And again, this is something that you, it is rather difficult to do on a sort of comprehensive way, except for looking in DNA. But of course, this is something that a lot of people are looking at in a cancer. If you have this variation, uh, this of course means that it's more serious and so on. So this is something that is very interesting for the future. So if people would like to access the data or maybe be able to you know, scan images or look at the data in the human protein atlas, where would they look? So the easiest way is simply to Google human protein and then you will end up in the link proteinatlas.org. And there you will then be able to then go in. And if you are interested in a particular protein, you will then search for that one. It's a little bit like Google. And then you will get all the information for that protein. And, but of course, it's not that easy to go in and look at all the data since we have 15 million web pages. But of course, they have been trying, we have been trying to make them accessible. So when you're looking at something, if you're interested in the proteins in the blood, you have one section. If you're interested in the proteins in human cell lines, you go to another section. If you're interested in the proteins in the brain, there's a third section and so on. So we've been trying to then uh, stratify the data so it's easy, uh, especially for researchers then that knows what they are looking for. Very good. And do you put out uh, updates over Twitter or anything like that? Uh, absolutely. So we have a Twitter account at Protein Atlas, and uh, we also have tried to to at the webpage also to have news articles, trying to have that at least one news articles per, per week. But the easiest access would be to go to Twitter and look for at Protein Atlas. Well, I guess the last question I would have is, I'm a plant biologist. And are there similar efforts underway in plants? Or do you think that maybe this would be another extension of this kind of work? We, there is quite a lot of efforts following this in, in the you know, mammalian model organisms, uh, pig, macaque, and mouse, and so on. Plants, uh, we have been thinking about that, but of course it's rather expensive to make these antibodies. And the antibodies which are made for humans, they don't usually work in plants. So you have to sort of redo this. 
The good thing about moving to pig and mouse and so on is that most of these antibodies also work in humans. So uh, also work in mouse and, and, and so on. So, so we can sort of reuse the antibodies in a different sort of molecular setting or a species setting. But plants, we have to do it again. And we, no one has sort of got the funding to do this kind of making antibodies to all the plant proteins yet. Yeah, it would be a couple more decades. So I just, I had to ask just to see if it was on your radar. Well, Dr. Matthias Ullin, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a fascinating project and I'm really excited to talk about it and learn that this is a, really such a great resource. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And to the listeners, thank you again for listening to Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast. Check out Collabra's software and the different tools they have to make your laboratory work more efficient and have all of your data in one shared space. This is the Talking Biotech podcast. And You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Collabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Collabra's electronic lab notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.